Aaron and I had a wonderful morning yesterday. We took part in a walking tour of downtown Lansing churches that our very own Valerie Marvin led. And it was very cool. We went inside a few of them, uh, First Baptist and others, and then we learned all about a bunch of them. And, and honestly, even though I'm Baptist all the way through, I got to tell you, my favorite downtown church edifice is that Anglican Church, St. Paul's Episcopal Church. It is gorgeous. And I tell you, I had forgotten about something so serious that happened with that church building just a couple years ago. I'm sure you read about this in the paper or heard about it, that one day the wall of the sanctuary, the one with the most beautiful, huge, ornate stained glass, began to separate from the rest of the building at the top. And it was in danger of falling down. And I remember everyone scrambling, people giving money and all these things. And I actually didn't learn why this happened until yesterday. And, and Valerie, in, in true kind of pithy fashion, said that there was at one point when they were about to build that church, a, a rector there, a, a priest who had many grand ideas about architecture, but was not an architect. Uh, and so they built this beautiful, wonderful church, but there in the foundation, something was not quite right. And I, I don't know the, the pastor there now, but the former pastor, Gordon Weller, and I were our friends, and uh, we've sat and talked uh, when he was the pastor there about everything under the sun, especially church stuff. He never mentioned any issue with the building. He didn't know about it. No one knew about it. You walk in, this is just a beautiful, beautiful place of worship, and yet down there in the foundation was this flaw, and it took a long time. The, the stained glass, the glass began to actually curl because of the movement. They, they took it all out. They had to send it away and have everything restored. They had dug down 30 feet and reinforced everything with steel so that the wall would never again begin to do that. And, and they reassembled it. You go there today and it looks just fine. The foundation is recovered, but it took two and a half million dollars and quite some time to take care of that problem. It reminds us how important foundations are. As you build, Jesus talked about building your house upon the rock, not upon the sand, because the foundation is so important. And even if what you're building, and I certainly don't mean this as a commentary on that particular church, I'm saying any church, what you're building, even if it's beautiful stained glass and looks religious, if the foundation's not there, well then, it's in danger of when the first storm blows through, crumbling and falling apart. Jesus taught this at great length. This is something that we as Christians need to understand. When he talked to the, the, the Pharisees, it was about making sure the heart, the foundation was right because all they cared about was what was above the surface. The outside of the tomb, the outside of the bowl, the decorations in the, the building, if you will. And when we read in the scriptures about foundations, I don't think we want to miss the fact that whenever we are given a command, it seems that it's tied to a foundation. Commands aren't just thrown at us willy-nilly arbitrarily in the scriptures. At least all of them that I can think of, and I spent a good deal of time this week thinking about them, are tied, if you look at least at the context, to something deeper. They are resting on a firm foundation, and generally it's given to you right with the command. I think about the Ten Commandments. In the Jewish way of counting, the first of the ten words, they call them the ten davrim, the first of them is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. That's the foundation. Now I'm going to tell you how to live, and remember, 
what I did for you, that I have your welfare in mind, that I love you, that I saved you, that I am powerful and I am a good God. I am your God, the God of your fathers. Or we think about the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, right? But that's built on the foundation of all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus gives us the foundation before he says, and so here's what you ought to do. Our religion is not primarily about doing. The doing rests on the foundation of being. Who God is and who he has declared you and I to be based on the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us. And when we get into some of the commands that we're going to look at today, there is also a foundation. For example, in 1 Peter, when we read, cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you, you have a command, cast all your cares upon him, and you have the foundation, for he cares for you. You're not serving a God who's way far off and looks down, and when you mess up, he goes, well, squish. No, we serve a God who cares for us, who loves us, and so we, we can cast our cares upon him, and he will take them. And here we see a command. Do not be silent. Verses 9 and 10, God says to Paul, do not be silent, and he gives him a foundation. For I am with you. And that makes all the difference. If you have your map, I think most of the maps are gone. We'll print some color maps up and put them in all the bulletins next week. Uh, Have a look there. We have now moved on from Athens. Paul is in Corinth. And I got to tell you, he bugged out of there pretty quick and all alone. He had told Silas and Timothy, come meet me in Athens, but he's not there because he, he, he's got to get out of there. He, he doesn't wait for them. And, and all on his lonesome, he travels the 50 to 60 miles to Corinth. If he walked, which I believe he probably did, I'm sure he walked slowly. Think about what this man has been through so far in this second missionary journey. In Philippi, he was beaten and then thrown in prison. He's going to definitely still be healing. And then he was kicked out of the city. In Thessalonica and in Berea, he'd been attacked, this time not with fists or rods or whips, but with words and accusations, which can be just as, if not more, damaging. I've been, for some reason, reading about and watching documentaries and things about Scientology lately. It blows my mind how they stay in this organization despite the fact that the leader will, with his fist, just beat on people. But they said, you know, beyond that, what was worse is when when we left the campaign of lies and accusations, even in our own neighborhoods and our own families and everything, that was even worse. And and for a Christian who is told that when that kind of lie is, is spread about you, that kind of accusation is leveled, it's not true, it's not fair, it's not even rational that we are blessed because great is our reward in heaven. That's hard to stomach, to turn the other cheek when this kind of attack comes. And it was undoubtedly hard for Paul. So he moved on to Athens. He was by himself at this point. He'd left Timothy behind and Silas behind and Thessalonica. So so he he goes there. And as he's trying to do some ministry, these Epicureans and Stoics, they say, what is this babbler saying? To us, that sounds like kind of a nasty word. But to Paul, it must have really stung. The real wooden translation is this seed picker. And the idea is someone who walks along and kind of picks up a few ideas here and there, kind of squeezes them together and says, okay, here's what I teach. A faker. And the seed picker, the kind of rural 
uh, it probably means like hayseed, like this hick. And of course, Paul, he was not by any means an uneducated man. He wasn't even from a rural area. It didn't really stick. And yet I'm sure the fact that this guy who was educated in Tarsus, being called a babbler, a, a seed picker, was difficult for him. He'd essentially been to the equivalent of Harvard or Yale, but then when he visited Oxford, Cambridge, they laughed at him, scoffed at him. And, and so he leaves. And in need of great encouragement, he now limps into Corinth all alone. He is undoubtedly depressed to some degree. He is undoubtedly scared. Why is that? I can tell you because God says to him in verses 9 and 10, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Again, that's a command, and it's got a foundation to it. For I am with you. Do not be afraid. If God says to someone, do not be afraid, it's because they're afraid. Especially if he says, do not be afraid any longer. And, of course, Paul's own words tell us how he entered into uh, Corinth. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He'd been through the ringer, spit out the other side, and now he's dragging himself into their presence. Now, we've studied 1 Corinthians in 2013, 2 Corinthians in 2017. I've told you all about Corinth at length. I'm not going to go through all of it again. Thousand-foot view, just fly over. This is a big city, three-quarters of a million people. More than half were slaves. That tells you a bit about what you need to know. It was a port city, and it was on an isthmus. You can see that if you look at your map, which means that it was a doubly important port. It was a place where you could bring a ship in, unload everything, drag it across a narrow land bridge, reload it, and save a ton of time and money, which made them a commercial center and power. Also a religious center. There was a temple to Aphrodite there. There was a temple of Apollo there. And people were very wrapped up in the religion of this city. He said to those in Athens, I see that you are in all ways religious. In Corinth, they were all kind of in the same way, religious, or one or two varieties that were very similar. It was religion that did not require any self-denial. A religion that did not require any real sacrifice. It was all centered around pleasure, around indulging the flesh, rather than mortifying the flesh. And that was well known. A second century pagan writer explained why he did not go to Corinth, saying this, I learned in a short time the nauseating behavior of the rich and the misery of the poor. Corinth was their sin city. A thousand priestesses and prostitutes would go down into the city every night to work their fare amongst the, those in the city, and many of them were slaves. Sexual sin and wickedness abounded. In fact, the, the text that we heard uh, last week from Romans 1, that was written in Corinth, as Paul is kind of walking us through the darkness of the human heart. I'm imagining he's sitting on the roof of the house where you would recline, writing this letter, and just describing everything he sees happening right there in Corinth. How, how people are, are just chasing pleasure and power and possessions until God hands them over to their own shameful lusts. In fact, in the, in the ancient world, from several centuries before this, there was a word to Corinthianize. And to Corinthianize meant to live a life of just absolute moral abandon, self-gratification, and promiscuity. That was what it meant to Corinthianize. And so Paul walks into this. He's already beat down. You think it might further 
damage him and weigh him down as a missionary. And today, you know, we can get awfully discouraged about the vainglory and the moral bankruptcy of our culture as well. Not to mention that in the church, it seems every week now, there's a new pastor or church that has fallen or a pastor who's apostatized. And yet, when Paul arrives in Corinth, God has prepared for him kind of a welcoming party. It's very quick that he meets two people, a guy named Aquila, his wife Priscilla. And these are people who are in Corinth because they lived in Rome when Claudius, about a year earlier, had expelled all the Jews from Rome over a big blow-up in the city around a guy named Crestus. We think probably this is Jesus. There was a big thing going on about Christians and, 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 and Jews having a, a kind of conflict over the doctrine of Christ. And so they were all kicked out. And we see in that very fact two things. First of all, that even though the book of Acts seems to be the story of Paul slowly making his way to Rome, the gospel's already there. The gospel's already, God's, God's got the advance team worked out. The gospel has reached Rome, and there is a church, and there are leaders. And, and even after the Jews are cast out, of course, then there's a Gentile church there. That leads to some problems when the Jews come back in, but God is still at work through all of it. Secondly, we see that in God's sovereignty, even when a Roman emperor who thinks he's a god tries to do something against the, the plan and the will of this Yahweh God, he ends up inadvertently furthering his plan. The plan of this God that he despises. So he meets these people, Priscilla and Aquila. By the way, Priscilla and Aquila rhymes. Priscilla and Aquila doesn't, but it's right. That's just not neither here nor there. Uh, now, they don't only serve Jesus like Paul does. So now he's not alone. He has people to pray with, to stay with. People who encourage each other and plan ministry together, they're also in the same trade as he is. They're all tent makers, probably working with leather. And so now they can go into business together to fund their mission and their church planting in the city of Corinth. This is God's providence. Absolutely. Keep your eyes open for God's providence in your life, especially when you are feeling beat down and brought through the ringer. Now remember, it is in Corinth where Paul famously made tents so as not to be confused with these pagan profiteers who would teach, but only in order to get rich. He didn't want to, he didn't want to confuse them by saying, you pay me and I'll teach you. And so that's where he did this, and in Thessalonica as well. So he's got new friends. A little bit of an up. A little bit of an encouragement. And then his old friends finally find him and come and meet him here in Corinth. Silas and Timothy... And now he's surrounded by fellow believers. There's a core group. See, Paul hasn't isolated himself. And that's why he does not fall into this kind of defeated funk after he's been through all of this. And we know from the Thessalonian epistles that Paul is very worried about that church. He struggles with the anxiety about how things are going there. And it seems a little tenuous, touch and go for a while. And now he gets a good report from Timothy. Things are going well there. Oh, and he also gets some money. Here's an offering that comes from the church in Philippi where you were beaten and thrown in prison and then kicked out of town. Well, after that, the church has been growing and the church is now giving, funding mission, not just receiving uh, on the receiving end of missions, but, but on the giving end of missions. And, and that's more good news 
God has prepared almost a welcoming committee, and, and he's got like this. It's almost like when, when Jacob is like Esau, here's waves of gifts to try and kind of bring you back up out of your anger. Here's some goats. Here's some sheep. Here's some gold. Here's some other stuff. There's these waves. Of, well, wait, there's more. There's more. And once he has this gift, you see, it's not that Paul is opposed to accepting money so that he can do full-time ministry. It's that he knew it would be a problem in Corinth. Once he has the money from Macedonia, he devotes himself full-time to preaching. And so we see here that Paul evidences for us, demonstrates for us, that we as Christians need other Christians, particularly when we are feeling like we don't. Or like we don't want them around. We hear often people will say things like, I fell away from the church because, I don't know, Christianity just became less important to me. Dig a little deeper. I have found 10 times out of 10, Christianity became a little less important to you because you began to fall away from the church. If there is a fire, glowing coals, burning in a fire pit, and you take the tongs and you remove one of them from the others, in very short order, the glowing red will become gray, will become white, will become ash, will become nothing. It will no longer be glowing, but cold. Do not withdraw into yourself when you find yourself struggling. Reach out to someone. Do not be silent. As, as God says, God is with you. I hear people often say, you know, if you're, if you're in a bad situation, think of someone worse off than you, which seems weird to me. How about find someone worse off than you and then help them, show them God's love, help to care for them and bring them into a, a better place. I mean, rest is important. Yes, Jesus models that for us, withdrawing for a time. He'll go and withdraw in order to rest and pray and recharge. But when people tell me that they're taking a break from the church because they're getting burned out, I go, no, that's the last thing. That's the opposite of what you need to do, spiritually speaking. Sure, unplug from some of the stuff you're doing if you're doing too much, absolutely, but don't leave the church where you can be fed and encouraged, where you, where you come to the, the table together for the Lord's body and His blood, where you hear the Word and you receive Christ. Where, where in the apostles' words, we spur one another on to good works. So Paul, yes, he needs to be ministered to, but he also needs to take part in some fruitful ministry because he's been spinning his wheels a little bit. And so as soon as he gets there and he finds his, his feet, his footing, he, he begins to do ministry. Same thing as always, he goes into the synagogue. Rest is important, yes, but when you're exercising your spiritual gifts, if they are your spiritual gifts, it shouldn't be a real suck, a, a, a draw of your energy, but rather should enthusiastically energize you and make you feel as though God is at work in you, embolden you and strengthen you. God knows when you need to be built up, and he will do it. He's there in his spirit to renew you. Paul needs it right now. And God has already set the table for that, so to speak, in Corinth. You know, I hear people say often, this religious truism, I'll, I know God won't give me more than I can handle. And I always say, why do you say that? Of course God will give you more than you can handle. And the reason that that phrase is problematic is because my natural limits, what I can handle in the flesh, somehow dictate what will, God will allow me to undergo, which would teach me to trust in myself, in my flesh, rather than trust in Him and lean on Him. 
like a load limit on a bridge. God looks at me and goes, all right, I can't put more than whatever, 2,000 pounds of pressure on this guy or he's going to crack. Instead, God promises to be with us whatever we endure. Don't say to yourself this unbiblical phrase, God won't give me more than I can handle. Say to yourself, God is with me. I should not be afraid. God is with me. He will not leave me or forsake me. You're given so much by way of encouragement in the scriptures. Why do we need to make up other stuff? And so there is a time of rest for Paul here. A time without, and it's an extended time, without real effective opposition or persecution of his ministry. And, and even when you look back into church history, we see these things. You know, people think of the early church, the first 600 years, as one big long period of persecution. Roman emperors throwing people into the wild beasts, burning them as, as lampposts and all this kind of stuff, as if it never stopped. And the fact is, it did. Here and there you have these major persecutions that were, yes, indeed, very horrible and horrifying, but... Much of the time, there was rest. Or even look back to like the book of Judges. You read that through and you go, wow, they were always fighting, always being oppressed. It was such a, well, no, most of the time in most of the land, there was peace. As we fly over, we're just seeing where the oppression was coming and how God was using these things to draw people back to him and bring them to a place of repentance. And so there's a time of rest here. But Paul's not going to take a break from his calling, his ministry. As he gets back into ministry, you would hope he'd have an early win. Right? The first time he goes into the synagogue, they'd say, this is the guy. Let's listen to him. You know what? I am so sorry to hear about what you've been through. We think you're special. Here's a trophy. Not what happens. He finds himself once again harshly rejected by those in the synagogue, to whom he was once held up as a role model and, and kind of adored. And so he, he shakes the dust off his garments. He says, you want me? I'll be next door. Your blood is on your heads. I am no longer going to bring the gospel here because what you're doing is trampling on it. Now, shaking the dust out of your garment is like knocking the dust off your sandals. You remember that from Jesus' teaching. It's almost like if there's any little bit of this place left on me, I'm leaving it behind because this place is going to be the subject of judgment. And when the people hear the gospel and become abusive, this is what Paul tends to do. He doesn't just stick around and say, well, I'll keep on sliding the truth to you and you can keep on blaspheming it and defiling it. He moves on. This is Paul's example for us. This is Jesus teaching to us, right? When he said, do not cast pearls to swine or, or holy things to dogs. Because what they'll do is they will, they will destroy the holy thing and then you've kind of partnered with them in that. Then they'll turn on you and tear you to pieces. You don't want that, right? And so he does just that. He shakes off his garment. He goes next door to a Gentile's house. And he says, I'm going to be about Gentiles now. Now, I want you to get this very clear and maybe write it in the margin of your Bible. Paul is not rejecting the Jews in general. He's not saying, I'm no longer going to minister to Jewish people. In fact, his next stop on the second missionary journey is Ephesus. The first place he goes is the synagogue, and he is given a wonderful reception in that synagogue. Not to mention that the the very next convert, and probably the one after that that he has in Corinth, are leaders in the synagogue. 
So yes, he's continuing to minister to all people, Jew and Gentile. He says salvation is from the Jews, but where they were abusive and openly mocked and profaned the gospel of Jesus Christ, he shakes that dust off and leaves it behind. Now we see that he's in real need. Yes, he's had a little, a little boost from some new friends, some old friends, some good news, an offering. But once again in ministry, he's taken a licking. And once again in ministry, he's undoubtedly feeling down. And that's, I think, when we come to verse 9 and 10 and see God directly coming to him and speaking to him words of encouragement. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. What great words of comfort this is. What, what wonderful... Can you imagine if this were the words directed to you from God's own lips? Do not be... I'm telling you, here you will have no one who can come after you and attack you and harm you. I am with you. Do not be silent. Do not be afraid. You know, at 40, I've decided I'm done getting new tattoos. Just to me, personally, it seems a little sad. Um, if, if that's, I, don't, I don't mean to judge anybody, but th- I might make an exception for these verses. This would be sweet to be able to look at that all the time, be reminded, although you know what? You can always tattoo it on your heart, tattoo it on your mind, even better. These, these words are words of comfort for a man who is greatly in need of them. To me, when I read this, it reminds me of Elijah. In so many ways. Elijah, who was on the run, he also had been through the ringer. He had some success, and right on the heels of it, once again, oppression, persecution. He's running for his life. And so God comes and talks to him. He says some of the very same things, including that I am with you, and that I've got plans that you don't know anything about. Stop trying to carry this all on your shoulders. I'm paraphrasing. But Paul's afraid. Remember, he said, I came in with fear, much trembling. He's worried. He's racked with worry because he's seen how ugly things can get and it seems like they're about to get that ugly again. Now, Calvin and I just went to Michigan's Adventure this past week and uh, we were going down some slides and I, every time I, I do you know, the, the water slides, the first time, my first instinct as I get going faster and faster is like put my legs out and push my feet against it and slow myself down. Don't do that for a number of reasons. Uh, but... Most of all, I think that it takes away the whole point of the ride, right? you got to trust that at the bottom, you're going to be safe. You're going to come out, you're going to go into the water, you're, you're, you're going to be all right. You're not going to die in this water slide. Well, you know, I think in life we often, we're trying to, all the time to slow things down, to change course. Hey, trust that God is there to catch you when and if you will fall. And if he's leading you, go full speed ahead. I feel that Paul here is very much motivated by fear, and I don't think that's a stretch based on the biblical data. And I think often today the church is motivated by fear. If we were not, if we obeyed the command to be courageous and cast our cares upon him, for he cares for us, if we believed his promise that he would be with us, it would free us up to show the love and the mercy and the grace to all the people that God has has given us this commission. Go! And make disciples. Find the sheep without a shepherd and point them to the great shepherd of their souls. But when we're motivated by fear, everyone becomes a potential Judas, a possible enemy. 
What might happen? We lose our boldness. We become silent. And here God says, do not be silent. I think one of the greatest things that separated Jesus from the Pharisees was that they were motivated by fear. Fear of being found out as pretenders. Fear of losing their status and influence. Jesus, on the other hand, was motivated by perfect love. And as St. Paul tells us, perfect love casts out fear. Perhaps the solution is to begin in a reactionary way. When you are afraid, trust in the Lord. When you, you will be afraid, you're home, you will all be afraid. When you're afraid, trust in the Lord. And over time, with the psalmist, we begin to say, trust in the Lord and be not afraid. It's no longer a reaction, but it becomes the heart that we have, emboldened by the Holy Spirit within us. As Paul will later write to Timothy, God has not given a spirit of fear, but of boldness and of a sound mind. We're not talking here about some kind of machismo or, or false bravery, like some kind of tough guy. I'm not afraid of anything. No, this, this is, I mean, 2 Corinthians, as he's describing the, the heart and the, the condition with which he entered the city, he says, I boast in my weakness. Th this, is, this is how you deal with fear if you are boasting in weakness, if you are a trembling person, if you are someone who's been spit out by life like Paul has been. He came in with fear and much trembling. I think that we also, we don't, we don't recognize it, but in the American church, this, that's very much the sentiment much of the time. Fear and much trembling. We're afraid that you know, the church attendance is going down. What's it going to look like later? Laws are changing. What might happen? We're so worried about the, the lost status of the church in the world that, that we end up saying to ourselves, it's, it's over. The golden age is over. Mourn, put on sackcloth and ashes, rather than saying to ourselves, we're moving incrementally more and more, close, closer, closer to the same situation where the church flourished under the preaching of the apostles. And there was miracles and revival breaking out. And this is the sort of thing that the church should be praying for. I was talking with uh, Pastor Bays last week about this. Uh, he was reminiscing about how clergy used to be held up in the, in the community. You know, no, no matter where you went, you know, you, you kind of had a sense that, oh, you're reverend. Oh, oh okay, well, and, and that's gone now. If anything, you're kind of suspect or, or scoffed at. And I, I told him, you know, secretly... I always thought that that would be what happened, you know, when I was in college and seminary. You know, you're struggling with, will I, will I accept the free haircuts or not, right? There's no free haircuts. And yet, how much better to not have to worry about, well, I've got to maintain a position in uh, a kind of de facto community position, and rather, I'm the guy in the darkness proclaiming the light. The only one I'm worried about offending is Jesus Christ by not boldly and clearly proclaiming his gospel. The church is being persecuted around the world right now at the same time of a great revival of orthodoxy in the South and in the East. And yet, if you read social media, you'd probably come to the conclusion that here in America is where most of the persecution is happening. Based on what Christians are saying all the time. Oh no, look what's going on here and there. And this is what's coming down the road. And you know, maybe there is one category of suffering in which we as American Christians do surpass all other Christians on the planet. And that is the suffering through all the things that could happen. 
obsessing over all the scenarios and possibilities, lamenting that they're all a foregone conclusion, and then being neutralized, paralyzed by the fear and the, the, uh, the, the sadness and the despair. I, I do this in my own life. It becomes a self-protective thing. You say, well, this might happen, so I'm going to come to terms with the fact that it might happen by telling myself it will happen. My wife calls me on this all the time. And you know what she says? Zach, don't borrow trouble, which is an old-timey phrase that my mom never said, but apparently hers did, because it comes right off the tongue. Don't borrow trouble. And I think borrowing trouble is something that the church has become very good at. Jesus taught essentially the same thing. Don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You don't need to borrow trouble from tomorrow. Worry about today. Deal with today. Friends, ask yourself when you are overwhelmed and discouraged and on the verge of despair, are you borrowing trouble? In this vision, God deals with that tendency on Paul's behalf. He, he deals with all of the, the obstacles and detritus that are kind of in the way that the devil has put in Paul's path with one goal, to cause him to fall silent about the gospel. He clears them all away, and then he says to him, Do not be silent, for I am with you. And then he tells him this very comforting news. I have many in this city. Once again, reminding us of God talking to Elijah on the mountain of the Lord, right? I have 7,000 in this city who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In that case, it was 7,000 who were already faithful to God, just on the down low because they were worried about Jezebel. In this case, he has many in the city who have not yet come to faith. He has elect that Paul is called to reach. There are many people in Corinth who are at the end of their rope with the popular spirituality which approved of all kinds of sin and, and wickedness and even celebrated them. Sound familiar? Paul, as he came into this city, he was running on fumes and he was coasting into this place where people on the surface looked happy. And in the moment, in their lives of free sex and, and idolatry and feasting and drunkenness, but they had no peace, they had no joy. And God says there are many people who are right on the verge. Anybody here remember VH1's Behind the Music? I remember about the 15th time I watched that show. It's about, here's a, here's a band, here's a, a rock star, a pop star, and they show you their meteoric rise to fame. And much of the time, the second half was about their just falling apart. They had everything. Anything you could want in the flesh. Riches, the adoration of everyone. There were women all around. There was everything. Anything they want. They had it, and yet it wasn't enough. Not even close. It turned out to be empty. The spirituality there in Corinth was essentially that. It, 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 was, it was short term. It was happiness in the moment, but no joy. Happiness has to do with what's happening, but when it stops happening, it goes away. And in the moment, there's even diminishing returns on the happiness and gratification you can get from sin. It never satisfies in the long term. It's like when you go to a youth group lock-in and you, you take like 10 of the big pixie sticks. You know what I'm talking about, right? The big plastic ones and ah, ah, sugar. And then you drink a two-liter of Mountain Dew. A friend, I didn't do it. And then you get all amped up and you're running around in circles and your youth pastor looks at you like, don't worry, I got you. You're going to be practically passed out in 20 minutes because it's short term. This is our culture's spirituality. Mountain Dew and Pixie Sticks. 
a burst for a moment, but nothing that will truly satisfy the way Jesus satisfies. And so he says to him, I have many. There's a job for you to do, and you're guaranteed success because I have many in in this city. Election does not undermine evangelism. Here, it's the ground for it. It's the motivation to do it. The foundation, if you will. I have many in the city. Do not be silent, for the sheep will hear my voice in your words and will follow me. And so, Paul, and you, and me, cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. If you know him, If you really know him, you know that you can trust him. So Paul, he's reinvigorated, he's renewed, he's revived, it seems. And it's good that he is because a trial is coming. And by a trial, I mean like literally a trial. He's grabbed, he's dragged before Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia. And there he is once again put to the test. Again, I'm thinking of Elijah. The trial is too big for him to handle himself. He had to be reminded, I am with you. I am doing this with you. I am beneath you, holding you up. 1 Kings 19.7, remember? The angel of the Lord came again a second time, touched Elijah and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Whatever journey you're on right now, it's too great for you, but it's not too great for God. Cast your cares on Him. Do not be afraid, for He is with you. He cares for you. It's a command, but it's not arbitrary. It has a foundation. And yet, to disobey a command is still a sin. And all sin is to be repented of. When we find ourselves hoarding our cares, not casting them upon Him, we must repent of that and then turn away from it. And say, this one's kind of become a pet of mine, but there you go. Do away with this one. And maybe you need to do it again and again and again. And you keep finding the same one under your bed or in your pocket. It's okay. God is slow and patient. He is not quick to anger. One little thing we need to address, though, before we come to the close of this, is a seeming contradiction. Because God says to Paul, no one will attack you to harm you, in verse 10. Two verses later in verse 12, we read the Jews made it a united attack on Paul. Was God wrong? Was he lying to him? Was it a trick? Was it a test? Well, it seems that when God made that promise, if Paul would rely upon it, he would be comforted as he faced this trial. And all of the united attacks in the world would not be able to harm him. They could try, but they would fail. They thought that if they brought him before Gallio, especially given what had been going on in Rome lately and how tensions were high, that they could recreate a Pontius Pilate scenario in which they put pressure on and say, this guy is not good for Rome. You need to do away with him. And Gallio would fold. But they did not count on Gallio being a very stubborn man and rather apathetic. So they put a lot of pressure on him. They they imply that he is anti-Rome. They say he's teaching against the law, purposely ambiguous. The law that he's against is their own law, not Roman law. And as soon as Gallio recognizes this, he says, this isn't anything for me to hear. I don't care. Deal with it yourself. He has been preaching the gospel. He has been preaching boldly. He has not been silent when God said, do not be silent. And God, just as he promised, was with him through this. 
He had been proclaiming that there is salvation in none other but Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection. And many people did not like that. That is what will happen if you proclaim the gospel. Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Now there's literally no one of whom no one ever says anything bad. What Jesus is teaching there is that if, if your message is palatable to the people at large, if crowds come flocking of all sorts all the time because what you teach makes them feel good inside, you're not preaching the gospel. Because the gospel is foolishness and, and a stumbling block to those who are perishing. But to those who have faith, it is the power of salvation. And so, yeah, he, he, he says what they don't want to hear. He says it boldly. He is not silent, and he is vindicated. Again, in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, My message and my preaching when I was among you were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. After going through all of the difficulty he had been through, you can follow it on that map, every stop it seemed, Something horrible happening. Something that would, that would uh, drag him down. You'd think he might say, well, let me just kind of tone down the message. If I'm a little bit less forceful, if I'm a little bit less clear, maybe people won't get as mad at me. He cannot do it. He doubles down on the cross of Christ because he knows that God is with him. You know, it would be easy even to take a text like this and pre present it to you in a way that was is feel good. You know, life might get you down, but God's got your back. It's always darkest before the dawn, etc., etc., etc. And you might leave saying, wow, that's the best message I ever heard. It made me feel great inside, but it's not the gospel. And it wouldn't be faithful to the text. And at the end of the day, when they tried to take him down in a way that had been kind of tried and true for them, Gallio gives zero hoots about what he sees as this intra-Jewish squabble. And so, Paul, who went next door, started teaching to the Gentiles, started winning apostles, or winning converts, rather, started winning converts, even the man who was the leader of the synagogue, and it seems the next leader of the synagogue, two in a row, this guy Sosthenes. The crowd grabs him and beats him up. It's not 100% sure who the crowd is. Are these Romans who are beating up the Jews for bringing a stupid case to them? Or are these Jews beating up Sosthenes for converting? We don't know, but what we do know is that when you get to 1 Corinthians 1, we read Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, and our brother Sosthenes. He's with Paul writing that letter to the Corinthians later on. We see that Paul, as he walks into Corinth, sees it getting dark. And yet he has an attitude especially as God continues to give him more and more grace and replenish his spirit, that he will double down on the cross of Jesus and trust that God is with him. You know, I, I always look up every text in a few sermon illustration books. And one that I found for this text it said that according to Plutarch, when one of the soldiers who accompanied Leonidas, remember the 300 Spartans and all the Persians, one of those soldiers complained that the Persian arrows were so many as they came in that they blotted out the sun. Leonidas said, well, won't it be nice to fight in the shade? Not a great illustration here. Because it's not our machismo, our power, our, our one-liners. That stuff runs out. You can say, oh, I'll take whatever you throw at me, life. Eventually, just like when you go to the casino, 
the house wins. Life wins. Rather, we trust in a God who is with us. We trust in the God who, when the, the Medo-Persian Empire was, was taking over, there were, there were people who followed God, and they were thrown into a burning, blazing furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and when the king looked in, he said, didn't we throw three guys in there? There are four in there now. And one looks like the Son of God. This is the comfort to us. Not that I'm so tough, made of such stern stuff, that life won't drag me down. And when I do, God's there as my coach. Get up, get up, you can do it. Rather that God is indeed with me. His angels are protecting us. We are safe under the shadow of His wings. My friends, do not be afraid to pray, God, show me a glimpse of your wings. Show me that I'm safe in your hands. Give me that moment of reassurance. He gave it to Paul. He will give it to you. In your spirit to remind you. He is with you. He will not leave you. Cast your cares upon him. Do not be silent. And do not be afraid. Heavenly Father, we do confess that in the church in the West, we are so often motivated by fear. And we pray that you would take away that spirit of fear. That you would break it. And give us a spirit of boldness and of a sound mind that we would not be silent, that we would not be preoccupied with all that might go wrong, borrowing trouble, that instead, Lord, we would think about and dream about what you might do when all goes right, when your, when your purposes are realized, when you are working out all things for the good of those who love you. Lord, we pray that we would be looking forward, not with dread, but with anticipation, to see what you will do in our midst, here in America, here in Lansing, here at Judson Baptist Church, that we would be in this way, like those in Corinth who were faithful to you, like Priscilla and Aquila and Paul and Silas and Timothy, from whom a great church sprung up. Lord, we are in a Corinthianized culture. Let us not become despairing and discouraged but rather, Lord, may we remember that the light shines bright in the darkness. And right next door to that synagogue, the leader of the synagogue was saved. Lord, we pray that you would impress these things on our hearts and our minds as we leave this place and go out into the world. In your holy name we pray. Amen.